morning, church. Hey, let's pray together before we open up God's word. Well, Father, this morning we are uh, just incredibly grateful, um, overflowing with joy and gratitude for what this day represents and what it means. It, it, it means victory. It means that it was truly finished, that all that you had come for, all that you sought to accomplish, everything that you laid down there in that garden of Gethsemane was accepted and approved by God the Father and demonstrated his approval through the resurrection of the son so lord thank you thank you for family and for friends that are in town that we get to celebrate and commemorate with i pray today lord would be a day that just magnifies and glorifies you we're reminded from your word that no one takes your life from you but you laid it down of your own accord you had authority to lay it down and you had authority to take it up again thank you for this heroic feat this example of power and of majesty, and you are ruling and reigning with that level of authority today, and we're grateful for it. Lord, I pray for all the churches in our community, surrounding community, for all the people that are gathered together to hear your word. I pray that you would give our hearts um, just a tenderness, a, a humility to hear what your word would have to say. You give preachers courage and strength to preach the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat this morning. Well, hey, good morning. We still got some room on the front row? Nobody? I won't take it personally. Okay. Um, so I'm a, I'm a father of four. Most of you know that. Um, they're all about to have birthdays. We're, we're nine, seven, five, and three. So that's been fun, decade. Um, but uh, one of the things about kids, uh, at least right before I became a father, one of the things that someone told me was, was they sent me this ABC News article about the importance of a dad roughhousing with their children, right? Have you heard this before? It's, it's, it's proven to help the development of a child for a dad to roughhouse with his kids. And y'all, as a father of four, I've taken this responsibility um, seriously. Uh, it's one of the highlights of my day. I, I love doing this. I don't know about your kids, but my kids seem to never get enough of it. You know, they don't know when to stop, don't know how to stop. Like, they always seem to be craving it, no matter how much tickling, how much running, how much chasing. It's ongoing forever, Okay. So let me prove my point by giving you example, example D in our households. This is our two-year-old, okay? I'm going to show you a 20-second video clip of my two-year-old who um, did this last week. I was at the office. My wife sent me this video, and, and you'll see what I mean just about their desire for wrestling. So we'll show that clip. Mommy. What do you want? Listen, I'm, I'm totally objective, um, but that's pretty cute, okay? Um, I mean, my pure little harmless wife, you know, just trying to get the dishes done, and he just walks up, and he's like, man, please. He asked politely, you know, just please let me tackle you. Um, now, listen, it, it drives Annie crazy sometimes, but, but often when I come home from work or the office or whatever that looks like, and I, I park my car, I really look forward to the energy that I'm going to bring into our home. And, and usually what it looks like is it's intentional. Like I open the door as whatever monster or bad guy I need to be in that moment. And when I catch the kids by surprise, what that means is they, they usually respond 50-50, okay? 50% of them, like within them, is just like sheer fear because they had no idea, you're right, that I'm coming in with that level of energy. And it's pretty unmatched because I can bring that level of energy when I need to. But the other half of them is just like sheer joy, you know, just elation of of the fact that we get to do this. And when I catch them by surprise like that, it turns into chase. It's not as much wrestling. It's just chase. They're running. They're screaming. 
you know, I, we have neighbors in the room. They hear it, you know, and we're always going through the kitchen where my wife just happens to harmlessly be prepping dinner. You know, I'm sorry about that. But there are days, okay, where I, I don't catch them by surprise. They're waiting, you know, lying in ambush. <laughs> and, and the feeling within them isn't fear. It's like this, it's this aggression. It's this ferocity. And I'm like, where did this come from, okay? And let me answer this, that question for you. I know exactly where it came from. It's that they've put on some power. All right, so take example D once again, okay? Same child two weeks earlier, okay? It's so funny. All right, so let's just dissect this ensemble here. And this happens. And if you have kids in the room, you know when they put on a costume, like it's not just change of appearance. It's like change of personality. Like they, he attacks me with this deep aggression. So he has the power of Superman, you know, the, the courage of a tiger. You know, I don't have the heart to tell him it's Tigger. And if you remember Tigger, you know, he's pretty cowardly. And then he has the combat skills, you know, of a Ninja Turtle. And when he's wearing this, when I come into the house, man, like he's ready. Like they're ready. And, and I have an almost nine-year-old, which means I have to like start to try, you know. So <laughs> it's, it's fun. But, man, the difference there is that they've put on some power. They've put on power. And it, and it doesn't just change that, that, you know, outlook or that appearance. It really changes that personality. And as I was thinking about the resurrection this week and thinking about Easter, I just wonder, as we gather today, like how many of us are like cognitively aware of the resurrection, but have failed to like put on its power, like really failed to walk in, in what it means when we, when we read the scriptures about the power of the resurrection. Let me read a couple of scriptures from you. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. He goes on and says, indeed, I count all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that I may know him, is what verse 10 says. Then it says, and the power of his resurrection. There was something in Paul that was yearning to know the power of the resurrection. He prayed for the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. He says that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of that same power he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Church, the Bible is clear. It teaches that the resurrection of Jesus is not simply a cognitive lesson to be studied. It's a true and very present power to be put on, to be experienced. My wife is, is really famous as a baker. She's an incredible baker. Um, and we have these, these cinnamon rolls that she makes. And if you've been around our home, you know, like, they're famous. They're famous cinnamon rolls. So as I'm thinking about those cinnamon rolls, because I'm pretty hungry right now, okay, this is round two of three, here's what, I'd, here's what I'd like to offer. I'll give you two options. What Annie could do, well, actually, she couldn't do this because she never follows a, a, a recipe. She just does it by heart, okay? But what I could try to have her do is give you the recipe. Write down the ingredients, write down the measurements, write down the temperature at which to bake them, the time at which to bake them, all that stuff. Print out that piece of paper and give you that list of ingredients for that recipe. Or we could have her bake a pan. And we could give you the, the center one. Like, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, you know, it's not burned on the outside. It's like gooey and it's, it's warm. Like, which one of those options would give you a better taste of the power of her baking? It's no contest. Right? It's the tasting, it's the experiencing, yet for some reason, when it comes to spiritual realities, when it comes to spiritual realities like the resurrection, we, we grow content just being okay with the recipe, with just knowing the ingredients when the Bible wants you to actually taste it, to know its power, to put it on. So this morning, that's what I'm going to talk about. We're going to talk about the power of the resurrection. Specifically, we're going to look at power in the past, power in the present, and power in the future. 
And then at the very end, what I'll do is let us know how do we actually put it on? What does it look like to put that on? So let me give you a quick disclaimer. If, if you're new with us, um, one of the distinctives about our church is that we preach expositionally. That just means we preach through books of the Bible. For those who are part of our church, and, and you know this, we've been going through the book of Acts since August 7th. And there is an insight, okay? We're, we're getting there. We're in Acts 21 next week. But for today, we're teaching topically. We're looking at the resurrection. So that means I'll be flipping through Scripture a good bit. And you may not have enough time to kind of keep up. So I encourage you to write down the references that I list here. You can go back and read those, pray through those, study those on your own. All right, that's the disclaimer. So let's dive in. First thing we need to note this morning is that the resurrection power is power in the past. And it's pretty simple. It just means it, it happened, right? Past tense. Like the resurrection happened. Y'all, it is a historical fact. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. And again, we're thinking about this as a historical fact, that it happened in the past, that it happened. Verse 1 of Mark 16 reads, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Siloam, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They're saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. You can circle that. You can underline that. Y'all, that is past tense, right? He's not, he's rising. He has risen. Like, it has happened. Like, when you look into the tomb, what do you find? Nothing. Because it's happened. And y'all, this is a historical fact. There's, there's so much proof to be had. And I wish I could spend the next 45 minutes talking about the proof of the resurrection. But I'm going to give you a couple. But before I do, for all the nerds in the room, okay? You know who you are. I'm one of you. We're good. Do you might know where we get the word Easter? Would you might care to know where we get the word Easter? If you don't care, you can check out for the next 30 seconds, okay? Here's where we get the word Easter. So many times we confuse it with this 8th century, like goddess of fertility. That's where we kind of get the eggs. It's like this new spring, this new beginning, this kind of thing. It goes back way further than the 8th century. In fact, the word Easter comes from Mark chapter 16, verse 2. That word, risen. Sun had risen. So verse 2, this is, and very early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, just like today, when the sun had risen. That Latin word was once translated into Old German. The Old German word for risen, sun had risen, is eosturm, E-O-S-T-E-R-U-M. When that Old German word was translated into English, we get the word Easter. Easter is a new dawning. It's a sunrise. It's a new beginning, especially after the bleak darkness of something like the crucifixion. So when those women went to that tomb at sunrise, at Easter, what did they find? Nothing. It was empty. And y'all, that's the first proof of this historical fact. You know how easy it could be to just disprove this whole Christianity thing? Show the body. That's all you have to do. To disprove Christianity, because the whole New Testament hinges on the reality of the resurrection. To disprove this whole thing, all you got to do is present the body. You know what they can't do? Present the body. There is no body. Look at Matthew chapter 27. Again, you may want to jot that down. In Matthew 27, verse 62, we read this. The next day, that's the day after Jesus' crucifixion, the day after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, 
We remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Caught his own shot. That's pretty amazing, okay? Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Lest his disciples go in and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers? Go, make it as secure as you can. They knew. They knew if this body goes missing, we're in trouble. So what they do? They begged for a guard of soldiers to make this thing as secure as they can. They, they sealed the tomb, but it didn't stop. It happened. The resurrection happened. The, t- the tomb was opened. The seal was broken. The, the stone was rolled away. And you know why the stone was rolled away? It wasn't that Jesus could get out. No, he walks through closed doors later in the book of Luke, okay? It wasn't that he could get out. The stone was rolled away so that when you peered in, you could see something. And what is it that you see? Nothing. It's empty. Proof of the resurrection is the fact that you can't prove a body. You can't provide one. Centuries after centuries after centuries, people have been trying to search for the dead body of Jesus Christ, and they can't find it. Church, this was a historical fact. But secondly, the reality of the resurrection, the fact that it was a historical fact, is really proved by the transformation of his disciples. How do you attest to first century uneducated Jews turning the world upside down? How do you attest to the fact that this many people are gathered here on a day like today? That's not a hoax. You can't make that up. It's proven by the transformation of his followers. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Church, during those 40-day period, he, he walked with them, he talked with them, he taught, he studied with them. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 15 says that at one time he appeared to more than 500 at one time. You ever played the game of telephone with like six people? How long does it take till you get the story wrong after the sixth person? 500 at one time, and we still get the consistency of Scripture. It's proven by the transformation of these disciples. Guys, these guys were cowards when Jesus was crucified. They abandoned him on the night he was betrayed. They denied him on the night of his trial. And after he was crucified, they were in literal hiding. When he walked through locked doors, you know why he had to do that? Because they had locked the doors. They didn't want to suffer the same fate that Jesus suffered. They had locked the doors. They were scared. But after this 40-day period of sitting with Jesus, listening to them, walking with him, eating with him, they were totally different men. They were bold, fearless, powerful, even unto the point of death, like joyfully moving towards death, boldly proclaiming the realities of what they had seen in the resurrection, what they had seen, what they had touched, what they had heard with their own ears. Oh, it changed the world. It changed these men. The entire New Testament depends entirely on the assumption that Jesus is alive and that Jesus can be trusted that he should be worshipped, that he should be adored, and who will one day return in power and rule forever. So regarding the past, church, the resurrection is a historical fact. But when we go to doctrine about the resurrection, it was also a heroic feat. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the payment of sins was paid, past tense, in full. All right, do you follow me there? Because of the resurrection, the payment of sins was paid in full. This is where we're going to go doctrine. The Bible teaches that through his death, Jesus sacrificed himself to pay the penalty for the sins that we all deserved, right? We read that in Romans 3. The Bible teaches we have all sinned and fallen short of God's standards and God's expectations. Now, I don't know about your house. When my kids clearly disobey an expectation I have laid out for them, we have these things called consequences. I pray that that's the case in your home as well, okay? 
It's the same with Father God. He loves us. He disciplines us. And out of his love and out of his holiness and out of his justice, when we fail to meet the expectations that he has clearly laid out, seared in your conscience and seared in the word of God, there are consequences for that. And the Bible teaches the consequence of your sin and my sin is death. Physical death, for sure. Eternal death, yes, and that is terrifying. But let me say something about this death called spiritual death. We try to ignore this. We try to ignore the fact that we live our lives when we're disconnected from Jesus, but internally we're actually dead inside. Meaning, if you were honest with yourself, you would know, man, there's something missing in me. Like there's just this emptiness. No matter how much you accumulate, no matter what status you rise to, no matter how much you earn, get, take, whatever it looks like, if you were honest, if you slowed down just enough and looked internally, you go, man, there's something missing here. That's what it means to be spiritually dead, not living into the life that Jesus actually purchased for you. And we're so fearful of acknowledging that spiritual death that we will do anything to mask it. Like, we, we will numb that. And one of the things I see more often than anything to numb the spiritual death we exist is, is this thing called busyness, right? If we can run at a pace and work at a pace and live at a pace that I don't have to slow down and I don't have to consider the fact that I'm actually terrified and empty inside, then everything's going to be okay. So we numb ourselves with this busyness, but obviously we numb ourselves with physical pleasures as well. Separated, disconnected from the life that God purchased for you, that's spiritual death. And ultimately, y'all, without that emptiness being filled by faith in Christ, we will die. We will die physically, we will die spiritually, and we will die eternally. And some of you are thinking, man, we brought family here. <laughs> but yeah, that's bad news, isn't it? Like, that is bad news to be dead eternally. But the reason I wanted to harp on that bad news is because it's really hard to appreciate the good news if we don't really understand how bad it was. And here's the good news for you, okay? John 3.16 says that God so loved you that he gave his one and only son for you. That if you just believe in him, you don't have to die. That you can actually live forever. That's the beautiful part of the good news. That although sinless and deserving of life eternal, Jesus himself took on your sin and took the death that you deserve. That's the good news of the gospel. That he died a death he did not deserve so that you could ultimately live into a life that you do not deserve. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus was in such agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you're familiar with Scripture, you know that in John 17, he's on his knees just crying out to the Father, and he's wrestling with what awaits him. And what is he praying? Father, let this cup pass from me. Like, I don't want to drink this cup. What is the cup that Jesus is referencing in that prayer? The Old Testament says it's the cup of God's wrath, God's anger. God's consequences that is stored up for all of our sins. Somebody's got to drink it. You deserve to. And Jesus says, I don't want to drink it, but not my will. Your will be done. He willed himself to take that cup and to drink it on your behalf. So while he's hanging on the cross, right, in excruciating pain, what does he cry out? It is finished. That means that cup was drunk to the bottom. No more left. He took it all upon himself so that you don't have to. Y'all, that's the good news. The payment of your sins was paid in full. Past tense. It's a heroic feat. Here's, here's where we get to the resurrection about that. Like we talk about what Jesus did on the cross and what it means that he did on the cross, but where's the resurrection fit? All right, let me ask you this question. How do we know that God's wrath was actually satisfied on Jesus? Like how do we know, like truly know and walk with assurance that Jesus' payment of sins 
was sufficient for you? The answer is the resurrection. The resurrection is God's approval that what Jesus did is sufficient. He raised him. He said, I accept that. I accept that penalty and raised him from the dead. Romans 4 verse 25 says, Jesus was delivered up for our sins and he was raised for our forgiveness. Theologian Wayne Grudem says it this way. When Christ was raised from the dead, it was God's declaration of approval of Christ's work of redemption. By raising Jesus, God the Father was in effect saying he approves of Jesus' sacrifice, that his work was completed, and that Christ no longer had any need to remain dead. Church, a penalty was paid in full. No more wrath to bear, no more penalty left to pay. Jesus himself took it for you. Past tense. He did all that. He accomplished all of that. He mastered past tense. Mastered death even though it seemed like death had mastered him. He entered that tomb as a captive, but he left it a conqueror. He laid to rest, but it had risen to reign. All in the past tense. That's what happened a couple thousand years ago. Power of the resurrection church is power in the past, but it's also power for the present. All right, follow my line of logic here, okay? Not only did Jesus' resurrection pay for the penalty of your sins in your past, but it also gives you power to break the power of sin in your present. You follow that? Paid for. Like your debt is canceled all because of what happened in the past. But even today, the power of the resurrection can live within you so that you can break the power of sin in your present. Romans 6 verse 4. We were buried therefore with Jesus by baptism into death. Why? We were buried, past tense, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's present tense. Christ died and was raised in the past so that presently you can walk in this newness of life. And church, this newness of life gives you power to break the power of sin in your life. But this is one of those things, y'all, as a pastor, I see, I see this plague so many. This is one of those things where I see people accept the recipe of what I just said. Like, yeah, I believe Jesus died for me. I, I believe that he died and paid for my sins. Like, we accept the recipe of that but I see so many people forfeit the experience of that, like not really taste that. And, and what I mean is this, people still walking in slavery to sin, still walking, being conquered by sin, not living out the freedom that Christ actually died and rose for. So you live feeling stuck, like you'll never be able to accomplish whatever that vice is in your life. And not only that, because you know it's wrong, now you're condemned with shame and with guilt. I see so many believers, Christians, living like that. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. I'm always comforted by Paul because it means we're in good company. Listen to what he says. Romans 7, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very things that I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, just not the ability to carry it out. That sound familiar? I do not do the good that I want, and the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. He concludes this wrestling by saying, wretched man that I am. Who could ever deliver me from this body of death? How many of you would probably say that's true for you? Right? You, you try. Like, I'm trying to follow Jesus. I'm trying to do what is right, but there seems to be this law within me that I just can't perform what God has asked me to do. So you throw up your hands. You say, wretched man or woman that I am. Well, y'all, there's some more good news. Easter is the good news. Paul concludes his, his thought on that by answering his own question. He says, who will deliver me? In verse 25 of Romans 7, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he goes right into Romans 8 and verse 11. He says, if the spirit of him, listen to this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your bodies through his spirit that lives within you. That's the power of the resurrection. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now the spirit that lives within you. You don't have to be in bondage to sin anymore. You can actually walk in this newness of life. It's resurrection power for power over sin. But it also gives us power for service. Let me say this really quickly. Y'all, when you put on the power, like my little two-year-old, like it changes you. Changes the things that you want to live for. Changes the things that you do. I already noticed this in the apostles. They turned the world upside down after the power of the resurrection. But when you put on its power, you're going to be energized. In fact, empowered to live a life differently than you live now. You'll start serving. You'll start sharing. You'll start living for something more than your own kingdom. And, and you ask, why? Like, why does it change like this? Well, listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Here's where the resurrection plays into that. Because of the resurrection, we can be confident that this measly 75 or 85 years God has granted you is not the end. That there's life after this. That this isn't it. That means the things that you do today matter in the future. That means that there is life after this. That means the things that you serve, the things that you do, the deeds that you perform, all of that matters. But if it's not for the resurrection, like if the resurrection never happened, if it doesn't exist, you know what the Bible says about that? You should just eat and drink for tomorrow you die. It's meaningless. How many of us live that way? Just live for ourselves. Just eat and drink for tomorrow we die because there's no life after this. It's just meaningless. It's meaningless. We live that way, but y'all, if the resurrection did happen, it's not meaningless. Everything that you do today matters because this life is not the end. Without eternal life, what's the point? But church, it it did happen. The resurrection is a historical fact. It's a heroic feat, and it gives you power over sin, and it gives you service today, knowing that your investments today will pay off tomorrow. But let me turn to the future. This next one is, is really kind of present future, kind of impacts a little bit of both, but, but it's this. Because of the promising future due to the resurrection, it gives you power in the midst of suffering. It gives you power to suffer. Yay. Anybody excited about that? You know, Of all the things in life that differentiate us and make us distinct one from another, suffering is one of those things we all share in common, isn't it? Every one of us is guaranteed in this life to walk through suffering. Whether that's a difficult diagnosis, a devastating loss, a financial setback, maybe some severed relationships, whatever that looks like, we've all experienced suffering, mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And anytime you walk through suffering, how do we, how do we tend to describe it? It's like a, like a period of darkness, isn't it? It's just dark, dreary, gloomy. It's just dark, like a dark night. That's what walking through suffering looks like. And usually we enter into a season of suffering, and it's difficult. But the longer you're in that darkness, that difficulty begins to morph into despair, doesn't it? That's what suffering and pain does. It, it feels like darkness. But, but y'all, without the resurrection, hear this. There's no pain. There's no purpose in it. Like if the resurrection didn't happen, there's really no purpose for your pain. There's no meaning to it. It's just, to, it's just to pain. It's just pain to be avoided at all costs. It's pain to be escaped. It's pain to be numbed. How often do we live our life like that? But if the resurrection did happen, there's actually purpose in your pain. Listen to what the scripture says in Romans chapter 8. Because of the resurrection, we can look at our sufferings and know, verse 18, 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's in the future. You know, there's a glory awaiting us in the future because of the resurrection. Let me give you another one. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. Paul says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's in the future. Because of the resurrection, church, there's a glory awaiting you. That word glory means weight. It's a, it's a magnificent excellence of, of dignity that awaits you. There's life after this. There's a glory after you. Pain is not the end. And if you put on the power of the resurrection, you can walk through suffering with hope, with purpose, with meaning because of the resurrection. So let me give you one more about the future, and I'll close with this. There's power in death. Because of the resurrection, you now have power in death. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14. It says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. Because Jesus rose from the dead, y'all, you get to rise too. Before the resurrection, though, how do we view death? Like, if you don't believe in the resurrection, if you don't believe any of this, how do you view death? Like, that's, that's scary. Right? It should be avoided at all costs. It should be run away from. We should try to seek to overcome this because death is final. That means we've got to extend this thing. We've, we've got to avoid that. We don't even want to think about death. The fear that it brings, y'all, but because of the resurrection, you can approach death different. There's a power involved. Listen to what preacher Vody Bauckham says about the resurrection. He humorously starts like this. He says, the last time I checked, the death rate was one per person. He says, I didn't check today, but I'm sure it didn't change. That's scripture. Hebrews 9, 27. It appointed man to die once, then face judgment. That means everyone everywhere is asking or will ask the same question. How do I defeat death? How do I get away from this thing? Church, you can't. You can't beat him. You can't buy him off. You can't appease him. You can't outrun him. You can't exercise enough. You can't eat well enough. Whatever fad that is. Death is waiting. It's waiting for every one of us. There's nothing you can do to overtake the enemy of death. But you can put on the resurrection. You can put on the power of the resurrection, and you can look at the death in the face and go, where is your sting? He takes the sting out of death. Death isn't hopeless. Death isn't to be feared. It's actually something to be rewarded with, to be moved toward. The Bible says that those who are in Christ, death is like a nap. I'm like the king of 15-minute Saturday power naps. It's amazing. You just wake up, and, and you're in glory. No pain. Just moving towards glory. That's what awaits those that are in Christ with the resurrection. There's a lady in our church who, who we feared a few months ago would be passing away, and, and I have the privilege, really, and the pleasure to go in and, and just sit. Just offer the ministry of presence, to be there, to ask some questions, to pray, maybe read some scripture. Y'all, within 15 seconds of going into that room, I realized I am not needed here. Because I asked that lady, how are you? She said, oh, I'm just ready to see Jesus. Now, her daughter was in the room, and she didn't want to hear that. But I tell you, that's someone that's put on the power of the resurrection. Someone that can move towards death with hope, with power. It's different. Church, it's not ingredients. It's not a recipe to be taken. It's power to put on. The power of the resurrection is power for your past, power in the present, and power for the future. But you've got to put it on. So how do we do that? I told you how to answer it. How do you do that? And before I even answer that, let me give you a few diagnostic questions. How do you know if I have or I haven't? When we think about power of the past, 
Do you live as if the penalty for your sin has been paid? Or are you still carrying around the weight of your own consequences? Right? Let me ask it this way. Is your life characterized by joy and by freedom? Or by shame and regret and condemnation? Because I told you, Jesus paid the full price for you. When we think about power for the present, do you live trapped and stuck doing the things you don't want to do and unable to perform the things that you do want to do? Let me ask it this way. Is your life characterized by living in the impulses of your own sinful desires? Are you a slave to sin? Or have you seen incremental victories in the power of sin in your life? It's just a diagnostic question. Let me ask about the future. How do you endure suffering? Despair or delight? How do you think about death? With hope or with fear? These are all diagnostic questions to help us understand, do we just have an ingredient, recipe-driven understanding of the resurrection? Or are we to put on its power? So how do we do it? Let me quickly but clearly say, how do we put this on? First, as we regard the power of the past, y'all, I mentioned that the power of the past is that your sins have been paid in full. That's true. True. He died to pay the full penalty for your sins, but there's a condition. Same scripture I preached on earlier, Romans 4, verse 24 says, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead and who was delivered up for our sins and raised for our forgiveness. What's the condition there? Belief. Just to believe. It's counted to us who believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Belief in the Bible is to be persuaded of something, like to be persuaded of this historical fact, but also to place confidence in something. That's biblical belief. I believe that that's true, and I'm going to put my confidence in the fact that he did it for me. That's biblical belief. Second, we think about the power of the present. I mentioned that the power of the present is victory over sin. Y'all, that's true. Jesus died and rose again so that the power of sin could be broken in your life. But there's a condition. In Romans chapter 6, we read this. We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus. Why? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the death he died to sin once for all, once for everybody, but the life he lives now, he lives to God, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Second condition, y'all, is to consider. What does that mean? What does that look like? Other translations would say to reckon. It just means I'm going to live confidently in the fact that I've already put my belief in. It's just to live out what you believe. It's not magic. It's just the Bible says power of sin is broken in my life. I'm going to live as if the power of sin is broken in my life. I'm going to consider my old self dead and my new self alive. The word here for consider is actually a Greek word used in accounting. It's what a bookkeeper does when she adds up a column of numbers, calculates them all, and then just confidently inserts. Because the numbers don't lie, right? It just confidently inserts them into the sum total. That's what it means to consider something, a firm condition of the facts, to believe that it's true and to live as if it is. So often when I talk about Christians or meet with Christians who are enslaved to sin, and I say, well, man, you just need to consider that what Jesus did for you was sufficient. Usually what I hear is, but I just don't feel any different. I don't feel like the power of sin was actually broken. Y'all, did I read any scriptures about your feelings? None. We let feelings dictate what we believe so often, but let me let you in on a little secret. 
If what you believe does not conform to God's truth, what you feel will never conform to reality. Let's say it again. If what we believe does not conform to truth, then what we feel does not conform to reality. So if what you're believing isn't in alignment with truth, the things that you're feeling are deceiving you. We let our feelings dictate what we believe when we should let our believings dictate what we feel. Are you following me? It's a totally different way of living. Our culture, our society says what? Whatever you feel is true. Be true to your feelings. Yo, I feel a lot. I got four kids, nine, seven, five, and three. Primarily, I feel a lot of anger. Do I let anger dictate what I do? No. I put my feelings in subjection to who God's called me to be as a father. I believe what I'm supposed to be. It changes how I feel. That's the biblical truth. It's nothing about feelings. Consider it done. Believe God's word. Finally, though, when we look at the power in the future, I mentioned that the power of the future is power in suffering and power in the face of death. Church, that's true. You don't have to fear death. But you guessed it. There's a condition. Let me close by reading 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Putting on the power of the resurrection is as simple as understanding those two little words that I emphasized. In Christ. In Christ is how the Bible defines those who are believers. You are in Christ. Being in Christ means that by faith we're joined to Jesus. That means when that future glory happens, and God the Father says, whose merit do you enter here? You go, it ain't mine. I'm in him. It's his merit. That means when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sins or your imperfections. He sees Christ. Why? Because you are hidden in Christ. Only in Christ, church, is your sin debt canceled, your relationship with God restored, and your eternity secure. And, you know, that's why Easter is such a big deal. That's why we bust out the seersucker, you know, and whatever traditions we have. The matching rompers. I know. You knew I was coming for it, okay? That's why we feast with family and with friends, y'all, because it's a celebration. It's because you've tasted that cinnamon roll. You've tasted that thing. You've put on that power, and you know that power was a heroic feat that paid the penalty for your sins, that broke the power of sin in your life and gives the sting of death nothing, takes it away. And I pray this morning, church, that you're not just satisfied with cognitive understanding, that you're not just satisfied with that recipe, that you taste it, that you really know what it means to put on the power of Jesus' resurrection. So I'm going to pray for us, and then our team is going to come back up and lead us through a song of response. Let me pray. Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. Jesus, what an example you were. You said that you have the authority to lay your life down. Nobody takes it from you. You chose it. By an exercise of your will, you chose to lay it down. I'm sure you didn't feel like it. You chose it. You had the power to take it up again, and you did. Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth of the resurrection. Thank you that you paid our penalty for us. Thank you that the power of sin is broken in us. And I pray, God, I pray our people, pray these people would taste that reality, that you would break the power of sin in their life. They would consider sin dead and them walking in newness of life for you. And Lord, ultimately, I pray that we would live as a people knowing eternal life is awaiting. We would serve, that we would share that we would be the church, that we would approach death with hope and praise and worship. 
thank you for the power of the resurrection. I pray we can all put it on in Jesus' name. Amen.